Well, this morning we're uh, continuing a series we've called Encountering Christ. And basically, if you're visiting with us, we're walking through the Gospel of John together. Specifically, we're looking at different encounters that Jesus had with people. And this morning we come to John chapter 3, which is probably some of the most familiar and recognizable passage in the entire Bible, even within the world today, not just in the church. In fact, you might remember from a couple months ago, there was a certain born-again football player who you might recognize here on the screen. He likes to wear John 316 eye patches, and in a playoff game, Tim Tebow, who is the quarterback of the Denver Broncos, in a game against the Pittsburgh Steelers, threw for, get this, 316 yards passing, averaging 31.6 yards per attempt, and they discovered after the game that the television rating was, yes, you guessed it, 31.6. Six. And so the national media picked up this story about this born-again Christian who wears John 316 eye patches, and uh, it was all over the Today Show, the Good Morning America, ESPN, you talk about it, people were talking about this guy and this passage. And for me, uh, the problem comes when we're so familiar with a passage, we automatically think we know what it means. But sometimes it's possible for us to lose the meaning behind these kind of things. In fact, when we hear the words born again today, if you hear those words, isn't it true sometimes we automatically think of a certain brand of Christianity or a certain type of person? It's not always used to mean the most flattering thing, is it? Sometimes it's describing a narrow-minded kind of individual. So here's what I'd like to do. Despite our familiarity... Despite some of our possible, even negative connotations these phrases have today, I want us to set aside all of that because if you're on your notes, though familiar, though familiar, this passage is crucial in order to encounter Christ. That's what John wrote the Gospel of John for. He wants people to encounter Christ, to believe in Christ. So I'm asking us as a church, if you've heard these phrases your whole life, John 3.16, let's set aside whatever we think they might mean and rediscover together this morning the beauty of these words. These words were spoken in an encounter Jesus had with a man by the name of Nicodemus. And we get the chance to open up our Bibles. This encounter was kept for us to be able to look at today. And again, if you're following in your notes, in this encounter, Jesus addresses, with Nicodemus, Jesus addresses both the problem and solution of our lives. Both the problem and solution of our lives. In other words, Nicodemus had a problem. And can I just tell you, it's a problem we all have as human beings. And Jesus gives him the solution. So take your Bibles and turn them to John 3. We're looking at verse 1. Hopefully you're getting used to where that is. If you come regularly, you know we're going to open those up every single week. We're going to get our fingers in there. We're going to look. Uh, It's on about page 700 or 800, I'm told, in the red Bibles and the seat, seat backs in front of you. If you don't have your own Bible, I really encourage you to grab one of those and follow along with us as we walk through this text. We've already prayed, but I'm going to ask uh, for the sake of what God might reveal to us this morning. Can we just bow our heads and give this time over to him? Lord, I've heard these words my entire life. But you've shown me uh, this week as I've been studying it that I don't know everything there is to know about him. 
And so, Lord, I would pray that right now, during our time together, that you would help us to set aside any preconceived notions we have and rediscover together as your church these incredible words you spoke to a man named Nicodemus and you still speak to us today. Open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to receive this from you. We pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's meet this man named Nicodemus. Would you read uh, John 3, verse 1 out loud with me on your notes as we start? It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. Now right away we learn some really valuable and important information about this guy Nicodemus. First, what do we learn? He is a Pharisee. Right? It's automatic. What do you think of when you hear the word Pharisee? Hiss, boo. We learn not only is he a Pharisee, he's like a member of the Jewish ruling council called the Sanhedrin. In other words, he's like one of the top Pharisees in all the land. And later in verse 10, we're going to discover that Nicodemus is the teacher of Israel. So if you want to talk about VIPs in the nation of Israel, this guy is like at the top of the list. And Jesus has an encounter with him. I want you to know on your notes, Nicodemus was a Pharisee, ruler, and teacher of Israel. This guy is important. I mean, I can't imagine a more significant encounter than Jesus will have with Nicodemus. Now, let me just ask you quickly, what does it mean that Nicodemus was a Pharisee? We have all sorts of connotations we think of when we hear the word Pharisees, but originally the Pharisees were thought to be a group, it literally means separated ones, that originated from Daniel and his three friends. When, you remember the story, Daniel is brought into captivity, into Babylon, he separates himself, doesn't partake in the food there, he doesn't partake in worshiping the king as God. And so 600 years or so go by to the time of Jesus, and we meet this group of people called the Pharisees, who became very devout, they separated themselves, by developing a comprehensive system for how we were supposed to live as human beings. You might call it a religion. You see, they took the first five books of the Old Testament, we call it the law, and they rightly believed that the law was the perfect word of God and it contained within it everything a man or woman would need to do in order to live in a way that pleased God. Unfortunately, they also discovered sometimes in the law, God gave more generalities than He did specifics. And they didn't like that. They wanted specifics. How do we live out this law in our day-to-day practice? So what they would do is they would take a law and then they would make an interpretation on the law and they started collecting these interpretations. Here's what this law really means. No, here's what this law really means. And they put it in a book called today, we call it the Mishnah. They wanted to know how to please God. So they looked at every law. If this doesn't make sense to you, let me give you an example. One of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, 8-11 says, keep the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. That was something God wanted the people of Israel to do, right? Set one side, one day aside every week in order to rest your soul and your mind and your body. That was a principle God wanted His people to keep. But that wasn't good enough for the Pharisees. They wanted to make sure that they were resting in the right way. So they started making rules about what you could or could not do on the Sabbath day that would be considered rest. For example, I I am not making this up. 
They decided that if you needed to get a drink of water, you might need to go to a well, right, and pull up some water to get a drink. That you are not permitted to tie a rope onto the bucket because that would be violating the Sabbath. However, if you tied a rope to a woman's girdle and then tied the girdle to the bucket, you could draw up water and drink it. Well, by the time they're done with just this law on the Sabbath, they had added 24 chapters to the Mishnah of rules that someone needed to keep in order to please God when it came to this rule of resting. They were all about keeping the rules. Now, what I want you to see this morning, the reason I'm telling you that, if you're on your notes, is no one, no one rivaled the Pharisees in being religious. In being religious. No one. And I've got to tell you, at the heart of it, what they thought is that they could please God by devoting themselves to these rules. So this is why you read the Gospels, they get so mad at Jesus, right? He comes on the scene and he starts breaking all their rules. Who's this guy think he is? It's also why today I think the Pharisees get such a bad rap in the church. I mean, I grew up, I knew I was supposed to hate the Pharisees. I mean, it's because of the Pharisees that Jesus was killed, right? They were constantly in conflict. But can I just tell you, the more I've grown, the more I've realized I'm a lot more like the Pharisees than I want to admit. That those of us in the church have a tendency to be a lot more like the Pharisees than any other group. Well, Jesus is meeting with this Pharisee. And I want to tell you, here's why I think we always lean towards this. From the very beginning of human history, history has shown us that the default mode of every human being, of all of us, of you, of me, my default mode, left on my own, when it comes to how I view God, whoever your God might be, is always going to skew towards this understanding of the Pharisees, isn't it? It's always going to skew towards religion. I've heard it called sometimes the great cosmic scale. This is what all of us start off with. This is what we really believe. I'm not talking about the scale in your bathroom here. I'm talking about this kind of scale. Somehow we've gotten to believe that God's up in heaven and there's a scale for each one of our lives up there. And sometimes I do really bad things. Sometimes I do medium bad things. Sometimes I do itty bitty bad things that God doesn't even care about. But overall, I'm a good person. And so what I do is I try to do some good things over the course of my life. And as long as, over the course of my life, as God's looking at my little scale, He drops more good things on one side than bad things, the day I die, I will come to God again, whoever that God is, and He'll say, congratulations, you've done more good than bad. Come on in. This is what Nicodemus thought, deep down. I mean, he's got this scale. Look, I'm related to Abraham, he's thinking. Big time plus. God's chosen people, plink. I'm a Pharisee. That means I'm following every rule and regulation you can possibly imagine. Plink, plink, plink. I'm a ruler. I sit on the Sanhedrin. Plink. I'm teaching people this stuff, man. I know about the scale. Plink, plink. If there was ever a person who's... The scale tipped in his favor. It's Nicodemus, isn't it? In fact, I want you to write this on your notes there. Uh, If you're following, Nicodemus is at the very top, 
the very top of the religious scale. He is about to discover, however, that everything he has come to understand about God and about the scale has been wrong. Look at verse 2. He came to Jesus at night. And by the way, there's a lot of speculation. Why did he come at night? Is it because he didn't want his other Pharisee buddies to see him? He was embarrassed. Or maybe it's just because Jesus was always surrounded by people. He was looking for a good opportunity. We don't really know. What's more important is what he says to Jesus. He said, Rabbi, we know, what you, are, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. This is so important, a statement here. Rabbi. Teacher, because that is where so many of you are this morning. That is where the majority of Americans are today. This is where the majority of the world is when it comes to who Jesus is. Nicodemus represents us as human beings. I saw that thing you did in the temple where you cleaned it out. That was was impressive. You may even have some prophetic nature about you. And then I heard about the whole turning the uh, water into wine thing. That's pretty amazing. I've come to the conclusion, Jesus, Nicodemus thinks, that you must have been sent from God. You're either some sort of a prophet or you're a great teacher, but I'd like to have a conversation with you now because I think you can learn some things from me about this scale, and I want to learn if I can add anything to my already prolific understanding of who God is. You might be able to add to that. Friends, ask the average person, this is where they see Jesus today. He's not God. He is not the Messiah. He's a prophet, right? A prophet from God, among other prophets. Or he's a great moral teacher, a a rabbi. And he came to add to our understanding of human beings to this whole religion thing. He's like one piece to this big puzzle, but there's really a whole lot of pieces, aren't there? And they're all teaching essentially the same thing. Good people are eventually rewarded. I mean, that's what Jesus thought, right? That's what every religion thinks. Good people are eventually rewarded. Like many people today, Nicodemus, I think, is a fan of Jesus. He can teach me some things that I don't already know, he thinks. And he's coming to him to get some insight into this, how, how this religion thing works. About the scale. But here's the problem with Jesus, because it's the problem we all have. He knows why Nicodemus is really there. And he knows what Nicodemus really needs. He needs to change his entire view of God. Nicodemus, he's just there to get some information. Especially when it comes to the kingdom. And so Jesus, as he so often does, he can see right through Nicodemus, can he? He cuts right to the chase. I almost, I've used to think this is so weird. It's like it has nothing to do with it. But Jesus is like, verse 3, let's read it out loud together. This is how he responds. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again... You cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again can also mean born from above. So what's Jesus saying here? He's saying, I am not going to engage in this small talk stuff. I don't want to talk about religion, Nicodemus. I don't want to talk about the scale. Let's just go to the heart of why you're really here. Let me go to the question. That's on your mind. The question all humanity is asking. You're wondering about the kingdom of God. You're wondering about the cosmic scale and where I might fit into that. You're wondering if I can add just a little bit to your already prolific understanding of religion. And Jesus says, I am going to just cut to the heart of this. 
He looks right at him. Verse 3, and if you're on your notes, Jesus says, everything you think you know about God is wrong. Everything you think you know about God is wrong. Nicodemus, there's no scale. You don't work to earn God's love. You receive it as a gift, just like birth. You don't get it. By keeping rules and regulations, you want to know about the kingdom? Fine, let me tell you about the kingdom. You can't even see it unless you're born again. Unless you're born from above. You see, it's not enough to simply change what you do. Nicodemus, there's a problem with you, and it's the same problem every single human being has who has ever lived. And all the scale is, is behavior modification, isn't it? It's just keeping the rules and the law, but that will never be enough. That'll never be enough, because we can never do enough good. Ever. You want to know why? Because it's not about what we do, it's about who we are. And if you're following on your notes, it's not just what we do, but who we are that must be changed. But I so want to believe it's the other way, don't you? It just makes me more comfortable. It makes me more comfortable to picture the scale and to know, like, God, if I do this, plink, good thing, then you're obligated. Scary word. But you're obligated to recognize that, to give me credit for that. And if I do enough good things, then eventually I get into heaven or wherever it is I'm going. Have you ever seen these Capital One commercials, you know, the, the ones that say, what's in your wallet? Where if somebody ever dares to use another credit card, they have these barbarians coming to attack uh, the people. You know what I'm talking about? Well, there's one in a mall, and I, it's just an interesting image to me where uh, one of the barbarians is running to go attack this person who's using the wrong kind of credit card. And this, he walks by this perfume counter, he's running by this perfume counter, and the perfume woman sprays him with some perfume. I kind of think... That's what Jesus says about religion. It may smell good, but you're just covering up a much bigger problem. You're just covering a much deeper issue. This is why he uses this incredible image of birth. Birth. It's, from, it's like passing from one life into another, from one environment into a, another environment. It's a whole new reality, right? To be born again, to be born from anew. You can't. Give birth to yourself, can you? Somebody has to do it for you, namely your mom. It's done for you. Birth. Similarly, entering the kingdom of God is not something you can do, Jesus said. It must be done for you. If you're following on your notes right now, I hope you see that Jesus is rebuilding the whole. W-H-O-L-E. Not just tweaking the system here. Nicodemus just wanted some tweaks for his system, for the scale. That's why he came. He's interested in learning. And Jesus says, I'm doing away with that. We're talking about something totally new. Well, Nicodemus responds, I guarantee the same way every single one of us would have responded if we were in his shoes. Verse 4, well, how can a man be born when he is old? I think he's kind of chuckling, you know, surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Ha <laughs> ha. What are you talking about? 
Jesus answers even more emphatically in verse 5. I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh give birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. In other words, this is not a physical thing I'm talking about here. Flesh gives birth to flesh. What does that mean? I mean, think about it. I think it means all the religious stuff you're doing, Nicodemus, you know what that is? It's just helping you be more religious. Congratulations. You're doing it in your own power. You're doing it in your own flesh. You're doing it to try to impress God. You're doing it to try to impress others. Be honest. And it may look impressive here and now, but it's all rubbish to my father. You may have sprayed some perfume on, but you still stink. You can't save yourself. And that's fundamentally what your scale is all about. Isn't that what the scale is? Come on, let's just admit it. Think about it. The scale is, I believe, I can save myself. We might not say that because I grew up in the church and I know that only Christ saves me. But I still think there's a scale. I still think, plink, if I do good, good, good. That's what God wants from me. Jesus says, no. That's the flesh. Only the Holy Spirit can give birth to your spirit. And he says in verse 7, you should not be surprised at me saying you must be born again. This always confused me here. Well, why wouldn't it be surprising to Nicodemus? I mean, he built his whole life on this, right? He's a Pharisee. He's a ruler. He's a teacher. And then it dawned on me of anyone in Israel who should have gotten it. I mean, who knew the scriptures better than Nicodemus? I can just hear Jesus saying, don't you remember God's promise in Isaiah 44 when he wrote, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. You remember that? You memorized that when you were like six. Or how about Joel 2.28? Similar promise. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Or how about Ezekiel 36, Nicodemus? Come on, you've got to remember this. I will sprinkle clean water on you, God said, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. What a promise this is. I will remove from you your heart of stone. Who's going to remove it? Plink, plink, is that going to remove it? I can't, but I will. And give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you. And will move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my law. Why does it surprise you to hear you must be born again? It says it all over the scripture. Salvation has always and will only ever be God's work. Not yours. Jesus then goes on to give two illustrations to help show the difference between religion and rebirth. Look at verse 8. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. In other words, you can't control the wind. Have any of you mastered that yet? Can you control the wind? Similarly, you can't control God with your legalistic, fleshly religion. That's what we're trying to do. I'm trying to control God, saying, if I do this, you are obligated to do that. But that's not how the Spirit of God works. The Spirit of God is like the wind. You may not know how it works, but you can certainly see it. 
You can see the effect it has on somebody's life. Now, Nicodemus probably doesn't like the direction this conversation is going right now, does he? He wants to be able to explain everything. I don't like this wind thing. I'm comfortable with my system. I'm comfortable with I do this, God does that. And this is where Nicodemus is probably tempted to do what some of you might be tempted to do. He's probably thinking, this is getting a little late. Time for bed. Uh, It's good meeting you. I'm going to go ahead and go back to my system where I'm a little bit more comfortable. But to his credit, he doesn't do that. He does what I hope some of you are doing this morning. He pauses and realizes, you know what? Maybe there's something I don't know. Maybe I've been wrong. So he asks in verse 9, I love it, how can this be? He's baffled. He's disturbed. I've committed my life to the law, to obedience, to prayer, to sacrifice. I've committed my life to understanding this religion thing. And you're throwing it out the window. How can this be? You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. So Jesus goes on to give him a second illustration. This one Nicodemus is going to understand because he goes back uh, to the Torah, you know, those first five books of the law. Verse 11, I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Ah, finally, I know this story. He's thinking. Jesus is talking about Numbers 21. Numbers 21 where the Israelites had been led out of slavery and captivity from Egypt. They got to experience some pretty incredible things, didn't they? The parting of the Red Sea, the ten plagues, God sending manna from heaven, and yet they continue to grumble and complain. Finally, God gets fed up. He decides they need to be uh, taught a lesson. And He sends poisonous snakes in their midst, and they begin dying. They cry out to God for His help and His mercy. Moses prays to Him, and this is what God tells Moses to do. He says, I want you to take some bronze and fashion it into the form of a snake, stick it on a pole, set the pole into the camp, and tell the people all they have to do is look at that snake on the pole, and they'll be healed. Well, just as God promised, the plan worked. And not only did the people survive that affliction, but they gained a powerful object lesson that Jesus is now using to describe himself. You see, the whole Bible points to him, doesn't it? The whole Bible is looking towards this day. He's saying, Nicodemus, remember Numbers 21? It's happening. Just like that bronze became a serpent, Nicodemus. I, the Son of God, became a human being. And just like that serpent was laid up on a pole, I will be laid up. I will be lifted up upon a cross. And just like when the Israelites looked to them, they were healed. All who look to me, all who look to me will be healed from the poison and venom of sin. The scale will be destroyed forever. Nicodemus, let me make this clear. What I've come to tell you is the days of the scale, they're over. In fact, the scale never worked to begin with. I'm sorry. 
It's a brand new way. It's a brand new approach. You don't get to heaven by being good or obeying the law. You get to heaven by simply looking at me and believing that what I did for you on the cross was enough. When I was lifted up, it accomplished all that you were trying to accomplish your whole life. Or if you're falling on your notes, Jesus claims he's the only means of salvation. He uses this story from Numbers 21 to claim he's the only means of salvation. The scale, however you want to define that in your life, doesn't work. Then he goes on into the most famous verse in the entire Bible, right? John 3.16. Really, you can't separate John 3.16 from 17, though, so I'm going to have you read both of those out loud. I mean, what do we do? I've got a problem because I like the scale. It makes sense to me. So how am I supposed to see the kingdom of God? How do I enter the kingdom? Read it out loud. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. What's the solution to our problem, to Nicodemus's problem? One word. Belief. It's kind of disappointing. Not try harder tomorrow. Not go to church more regularly. Not do more good. Belief. Now again, we're not talking just like mentally saying, okay, I believe that. We're talking about trusting with my whole life. In Christ, Jesus says on your notes, being born again occurs only through belief. You don't enter the kingdom of God by what you do. You only enter it by believing in what he did. This is what God, listen, you read John 3.16 with fresh eyes. God wants this for every human being. Every human being. This is the gift he has given them. And this is what makes biblical Christianity different from any other religion in this world. If you're falling on your notes, eternal life is not based on what I do, but on what Christ did. It's not based on what I do, but on what Christ did. It is not earned, in other words. No plink, plink, plink. Good, good, good. It's like he destroys it. He's going to get a scale and do what Jeff did with the whip last week, but he destroys it. There's no scale. It's given to you simply by receiving it through faith. You know what we call that? The gospel. You may have heard of it. It's good news, isn't it? It's great news. And to those who receive this gospel, it says in verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Amazing. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. What is he saying there? He's saying the solution to the problem has been given to you. All you got to do is receive it, but you can reject it. You can reject it. It's up to you. The gift is there for the taking. What are you going to do with it? Verse 19, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But men love darkness instead of light because of their, their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Have you ever had that fear with the scale? If you're living by the scale, don't you live with that fear? 
It's going to get exposed someday. It's going to get exposed that I did more bad than good. Or that I did this one thing. And I don't know how much that weighs against the other things. So I better be extra good. But he came as the light. Verse 21, but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. What a text. Can I just ask you to do me a favor? I want you to put yourself in Nicodemus's mind right now, if you can. You're standing here having this conversation with somebody who is basically telling you everything you have ever believed about God is wrong. You want to talk about paradigm shifts? You heard that phrase? He has just turned his whole life upside down. And my, my thoughts are I would either have one of two reactions. This stinks. Because I kind of like being able to control God. I've built my whole life on the scale, and I'm winning. Or, this is the greatest news I've ever heard in my life. Are you kidding me? There's no such thing as a scale that all I have to do is trust in what you did for me? Well, what did Nicodemus decide? Apparently, a little while later, one day Nicodemus is in a meeting with all the other religious rulers, you know, the elite. And they decide, we need to get rid of Jesus. He's causing all these problems. See, he's messing up our system. He says there's no such thing as the scale. What does he know? He's got to die. And yet it's Nicodemus who pipes up in this meeting and says, should we condemn someone we haven't even convicted in trial? That's bold. But he does it. Stands up for Jesus. Well, they shut him down, and eventually they do get rid of Jesus, right? We know the story. And one day Jesus is lifted up just like that bronze serpent up on that cross of wood. And they take his body down after he dies, and guess who shows up? To take care of the body of the Savior. Nicodemus. Now we don't know the motives for why he did it, but I firmly believe, friends, I firmly believe that he came to a point in his life where he no longer believed that Jesus was just a teacher or Jesus wasn't just a prophet, that he really was the Son of God sent from heaven to be lifted up for his sin. Or if you're following on your notes, Nicodemus comes to believe Jesus is the way to God. And because he did, he was, what? Born again. Nicodemus was born again. What about you? Have you been born again? I'm not asking if you've been born into a Christian family. I'm not asking if you were baptized when you were three. I'm not asking if you tithe. I'm not asking if you go to church regularly. I'm not asking if you read the Bible. I'm not asking if you pray. I'm not asking if you even fast. Although that's extra credit, right? (laughs) I am not even asking if one day you're like intellectually thinking, okay, I agree with the proposition that salvation is by grace alone through faith. And yet your whole life 
shows a different picture where you're still crippled by legalism and the scale. What I'm asking you is, have you been born again? If you're following on your notes there, have I really received Christ's gift and been born again? Now do whatever you need to do with the notes. But I just got to tell you, there's nothing less complicated than belief, is there? And it's frustrating to me. I told you I'm a recovering Pharisee. This stuff is frustrating to me. Because there's no quest to complete. There's no challenge to overcome. There's no method to master. There's no merit I have to earn. I have only to trust in the One who made me and who loves me and who sent His Son to be lifted up for me. Can some of you remember the moment when this truth overwhelmed you? Can you think back? I mean, you had heard it. You had heard it your whole life. One day, though, you're reading the Bible or you're in church and all of a sudden, I get it. It's not about what I do. I'm going to set aside that and trust it's in what he did. You remember that? What an amazing day that was, wasn't it? But some of you here this morning, I think, are probably where Nicodemus was. You're considering. You've heard it, but you're not sure. You know, Jesus, yeah, he's perhaps a good teacher, maybe even a prophet. My challenge to you this morning is, would you just not run away from it? Be like Nicodemus and at least stand there and ask the question, is this possible? Don't drudge up all the excuses you learned in college from your professor who talked about Christianity or whatever. Just stand there long enough and ask, I don't understand it, but I'm willing to look at it. In fact, what I'd really like you to do is start asking questions about the scale. We all got it. But I want you to see, ask questions. Does this really make sense? This idea that there's a a good God somewhere, and if I'm good enough, I'll get into heaven. I mean, that has some huge holes in it, doesn't it? Sadly, there's forms of Christianity that teach that same thing. You know that, right? I mean, here are the holes. Who's got the right list? Who's got the right list of the things I'm supposed to do? What counts as good? What counts as bad? How much good do I have to do before I die? Who defines good? I mean, is Mother Teresa good? Then I'm in big trouble. Because I'm not that good. In fact, I know I need a whole new heart. It's almost like I need a new birth. Friends, the message of Jesus, you know this, is not that good people go to heaven. Please hear that. It's that forgiven people go to heaven and forgiveness comes by believing on the one who was lifted up on the cross for you for the forgiveness of your sin. Some of you have been considering this for a long time. You've been coming to church. You've been dragged to church, perhaps. And I'd be remiss. How can I preach on John 3 and not give you an opportunity to close the deal this morning to be born again? Can you imagine? You've been coming to church for weeks, years. You might even have been born into the church. Have you gotten it? Have you gotten it? Have you been born again? It's not about what you do. It's about what he did. So I want to give you an opportunity to be born again. To believe that Jesus did it for you. That you can get rid of that stupid scale that's been crippling you.
if you know that the Holy Spirit has been moving in your heart this morning, just like Jesus described in this passage, right? It's like the wind. You just know he has been at work in your life. I want to lead you in a prayer right now. This prayer does not make you a Christian. It's just a way for you to express that you're putting your faith entirely in Christ. So let's all bow our heads together. If you know this is what you want to pray today, join me. Heavenly Father, I need a Savior. And I believe Jesus is the Savior. I believe He came to be my Savior. And right here, right now, today, March 4th, 2012, I am placing all of my trust in Christ on the cross for the full payment of my sin. I'm not trusting in my baptism, in my background, in my efforts, in my church membership. I'm not trusting in the money I've given. I'm not even going to trust in the good things I've done. I am putting all of my faith in who Jesus is and what he did on my behalf. All of it. And I ask you to fulfill the promise of this passage that you would right now receive me into your family. Give me the gift of eternal life. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.